0: I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at the end of the chapter, verse 26 down to 39. If uh, you don't have your own copy of of God's Word, I want to invite you. You're welcome to take out the black hardback Bible that's in front of you um, and turn with us to page 1194 over into 1195. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever determined that something in your possession had no value? And because you thought it had no value, you threw it away. Every husband here that has a garage or a attic or a storage shed full of boxes of random parts and nuts and bolts and this and that will elbow his wife when he says when this is is discussed they remember that one time out of the million things that they've kept that one time that they needed something but their wife took it to the dump and threw it away but we can all relate to that time where you thought something in your possession had lost its value wasn't worth keeping any longer and because of that you threw it away We've all suffered from realizing that we had made a mistake. Our friends, the first century Christian audience that uh, is in this morning's passage, they were in danger of doing that very same thing. As a matter of fact, some of them already had. Some of them, considering their relationship with Jesus, had looked around them, seen other means and methods of living their lives and finding peace, and determined that this relationship that they thought they had with Jesus was now no longer valuable, and so they cast it to the side. Well, The warning passage that we read this morning is directed at those, well, there's a danger that you and I will at some point in the future consider Jesus and think him not worthy of what it costs to follow him. And because that's such a dangerous and a risky thing, let's not wait any longer. Let's see what the Scriptures have to say about this particular issue. So starting in verse 26 there, again on page 1194, the Scriptures say this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins Of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He calls us to remember something. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not Throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And now the encouragement at the end. But we, the preacher says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word once more. Father, we pray that this is true of us, we be those who shrink back. We would not be those who are destroyed, but we would be those who have faith to the preserving of our souls. Father, we ask this with great confidence. We've boldly approached your throne. We've come by the way of Jesus Christ, his shed blood, his high priestly work on our behalf. We pray in his name, Jesus, we love you. Amen. I want to give you the main idea that I think I see coming to the top of the text here this morning, I'll give it to you right off the bat. The consequences of rejecting Jesus are terrible Therefore, do not throw away your confidence in him. I wish I could put this main idea in a softer way, but to do so would be to lie. It would be to deceive, and I don't want to do that. The consequences of rejecting Jesus are terrible. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence in him. As we walk through the text this morning, we'll see three signposts. We've already seen them pointed out as we've read the scriptures a moment ago, we've seen the warning. We've seen the remedy, and then we've seen the encouragement. The warning, the remedy, and the encouragement. Let's look first at the warning. That's verses 26 to 31. These few verses are sobering. Right off the bat, receiving the knowledge of the truth. It's a scary and painful sentence and description there, especially if we read what happens to those who do this very thing. And the Greek text, deliberately, is actually the first word. We read it a little bit differently. It's been structured differently. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's how our English translation reads it. But the Greek, they're able to... Order the sentence in a way that would help you to understand where the emphasis is, where the thrust of the sentence is. And the first word is deliberately. This is the main word in this sentence deliberately. It means intentional, it means high handed, and this as opposed to unintentional sins. You have high handed sins, intentional sins. And then you also have what the scriptures would call unintentional sins. The Old Testament, specifically I'm thinking of Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 to 31. It distinguishes between the willful, high-handed, and the unplanned, unintentional sins. One was premeditated, marked with rebellion, and the other is marked with weakness, Present tense here, single act. But it's an act that is committed and then it's continually committed. It's deliberately and continually occurring. Context here is those who have received the gospel, those who have received the good news, but yet in the face of knowing the truth, they turn and in rebellion deliberately turn away from God, turn away from Christ, reject the gospel the context there verse 25 we looked at it last week we have to conclude that it's speaking not of weakness or stumbling and sin but a, again a high-handed rebellion rejecting Jesus and the gospel and that's what's taking place there in that first century church again we don't know whether this is Rome or Jerusalem or some other city we're not exactly sure but regardless of that, there in this context, there were those that knew the truth. They'd been exposed to it. They'd received it. And now in rebellion, they had considered Jesus' sacrifice not very valuable. They'd rejected the gospel. They'd abandoned the church. And because of that, they are incurring the judgment of God on themselves. And we'll see that in just a moment. If we're not careful when we read this warning passage, which is meant to spur us along, just as we've been commanded to do a few verses prior, but if we're not careful, we could end up getting getting hurt by this in a way that was never intended to occur. So let me just throw out some clarifications. First, it's true that Christians sin, all Christians sin. Not that long ago, some of you remember this, you're traumatized by it because you publicly admitted here in this service that you were guilty of gossip. We've all done it. And we've done many other sins as well. It is true that Christians sin. If you're here for the first time in a Christian church service and you're thinking, wait a minute, all the rumors are true. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. They're all sinners. You're exactly right. I don't want to disappoint the scriptures have never indicated that Christians would never sin. As a matter of fact, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10 to says the exact opposite. It says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you're here this morning and you say, I have no sin, none at all, what have you done? You have deceived yourself. The truth is not in you. In verse ten, it goes on to say, "If we say we have here, if you say we have no sin, if you're here this morning and you say I have no sin, that's the present tense. I have not sinned. I do not have anything to be ashamed of. I'm not rebelled against God in any way. He's saying of you, the truth's not in you. You've deceived yourself. But what about the past tense? Well, he covers that in verse ten. If we say we have not sinned in the past, we make God a liar, and His word is not in us." Brothers and sisters, the reality is that Christians sin. We say, "Was well, he talking about us this morning then? If we are Christians and Christians sin, verse 26 says that if we continue sinning deliberately, that the wrath of God is upon us so that there's no more sacrifice for sin. Well, let's keep going. Number two issue I want to sort of dispel here. In addition to, it is true that Christian sin is this, sinning Christians are not without hope. Christians that sin are not without hope. Again, finding comfort in 1 John chapter 2 this time. Specifically, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Oh, which side is he on? But... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, was related to the author of Hebrews. Or maybe it was inspired by the same spirit. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We've spent the last several months looking at this idea that Jesus is our high priest. He has opened a new and living way into the very presence of God, expelled from the garden we were, desiring to get back into the presence of God, enjoying its safety and its splendor, and yet we've been unable to, but Christ has opened that way, and we can come boldly, even though we sin, even though we sin, we come to the Father for what purpose? because we have an advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ, who makes intercession for us even now. And so it's true, Christians sin. In addition to that, sinning Christians are not without hope. And finally, let me offer this. This particular instance here, this deliberate sin after receiving the knowledge and therefore not having any sacrifice applied to their sins, Some would say this is an instance of someone losing their salvation. Let me assure you again from 1 John, this is not an instance of someone losing their salvation. Last hour, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, But they were not of us. Who's he speaking of? Those who are against Christ. He says, For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Those who leave the faith. Those who having touched, tasted, handled the gospel, but then turning away, the scriptures say they were never truly of us. We can read the scriptures and we can read the news headlines full all the time of prominent figures who have deconstructed their faith. They've become enlightened, as it were, and they've left the Lord Christ. They've abandoned the gospel. What does the scripture say? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us. This is what Hebrews is saying. This is what 1 John is saying. And does it concur with what Jesus, our Lord, says? Jesus, telling the parable of the sower, offers this. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet it has no root in himself, but endures for a while And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is what we're seeing take place in this chapter. This is what's in mind of the preacher who pens these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That some of you, when the pressure comes, when tribulation and persecution arises, you'll fall away. Jesus told us it happened. And it actually happened in his ministry. Do you remember John chapter 6, verse 66 to 69, when it says this, after, his, after this, a hard saying that Jesus offers, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were of them, but they went out from among them. Why? Because they were, no, they, they were not actually of them. 67 goes on. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Will you also leave? Will you also abandon? Will you fail to endure? And Simon Peter answers Jesus. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal, the Holy One of God. Many left Jesus, but many stayed. It happened also to the Apostle Paul. This is really important for us to consider this morning. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, 19, and 20, scriptures say this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. There's Timothy. That's what he's commanded to do. Hold the faith with a good conscience. Wage the good warfare, but what? Has others, what have others done with this good conscience and this good warfare? Well, he says, by rejecting this, by rejecting this faith, this confession, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. These two dudes, Can't rightly call them brothers at this moment, not because of the way that they're acting. At this point in time, we don't know if they ever turned back. We don't know if the Holy Spirit was able to convict them, if their time apart from the saints was able to. But of these two, we know that they committed high-handed public abandonment of Christ. And because of that, they brought on themselves judgment. And if that was never repented of, if they never turn from their blasphemous ways, they incurred the wrath of God. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And they received the judgment if they did not turn. High-handed public abandonment of Jesus. That's what we're warned against. Don't do it. Stay faithful. Encourage one another. There's an argument being made within this warning, though, and it goes like this. Have you ever thought about how serious the punishment was for those who turned away, who in rebellion sinned against the law of Moses? They were cut off from the people of God, many of them even killed. And he goes on to say, if that's the law of Moses, which was given by God to his people, but if that's the law of Moses under the old covenant, if that's how serious it was treated, how much more under the new covenant when we reject Jesus and we reject his church, how much more will the punishment be? And he gives a metaphor. What they've done is to trample on something, to step on something is in the Old Testament and the Greek and even in modern day, it's the ultimate image of complete scorn, disrespect, The preacher says you've disrespected by by abandoning Jesus, by abandoning the church, you've disrespected Christ. You've profaned the blood of the covenant. You've treated the blood that Jesus shed, you've treated that as if it was filth and disgusting. And besides that, you've outraged, you've frustrated the Holy Spirit of grace, who in grace wooed you to himself and brought conviction into your life and encouraged you toward the gospel. Verse 28, it says that anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? I want you to notice he's not necessarily saying that it's a worse punishment if you used to Believe the gospel, or if you used to, or if you knew the gospel and then turned, but he's saying it's worse to turn away from the new covenant, greater than it would be to spurn or turn away from the old. If this is the case, there is no longer remaining for you a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Maybe you're familiar this morning with the term will call. If you actually think about that, will call. Well, sometimes we say it so fast together, we we actually forget what it is. But if you actually think about that word, will call, what does it mean? Well, it means will. It's a future. I will. It's something I intend to do. I will call. But not call like on the phone. I'll call as in I'll call some other day. Not today, but I'll come by and I'll receive the goods that you have for me there at the desk. This is a a way that uh, in the olden days, and it's similar to layaway even now, which is even now going away, but back in the day before you could just put something on a credit card, you could make payments on it, and you could have it stored there at the desk. And once it's finally paid for, you could return for that will call. You come to pick up the goods that you think is waiting there for you at that counter. I want you to think about these dudes These girls that have left the faith, that have abandoned Christ, that have abandoned the church, they have an expectation when they come to the desk. But the preacher says of their expectation, he says, There remains there, there is waiting for you, not a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. The idea is, these folks here think that there'll, there'll be some other sacrifice waiting for them. Somehow they'll be cared for. Somehow the blood of Christ will still be applied to them. Or the blood of these lambs that's sacrificed in the, in the temple will be applied to them. Or maybe they don't even need it. Maybe some other sacrifice will be made. Or maybe no sacrifice at all is even needed. And they go with great confidence to that desk. And what do they receive? Instead of a sacrifice for sins. Instead of a way to God. Instead of their sins being covered, what do they receive? A fearful expectation of judgment. Instead of tickets to the theater, they have a one-way ticket to jail. Not what they had expected. What can these who abandon Jesus, who deliberately continue to sin, to blaspheme Jesus, to trample on his blood, to outrage the spirit, what can they expect? Not salvation, judgment. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no other sacrifice for sins. Where will you go? You've gone to the temple and you've determined that this is worthless. Now you've gone to Jesus and again you've determined that this is worthless. Where will you go now? What other sacrifice remains? Nothing only a fearful expectation of judgment. And he goes on, in a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That word adversaries, keep that in mind. But let's look at verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Which leads right into the next verse. Section there on into verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a warning here for us this morning, and as we consider the warning, I want to encourage you with some application. And really, I only have one point of application, and it's this Hear the lion roar, hear the lion roar. In his book, The last battle, C.S. Lewis tells us of two lions. One lion is the true lion. He's the king, Aslan. He's not tame. He's not safe. He was a lion. Well, this donkey is parading around in a lion suit. The first lion creates stars and destroys armies with a single roar. The second lion doesn't say much at all, and he waddles when he walks. The first lion is dangerous. The second lion is no threat at all. There's only one lion that roars in that story. And there's only one lion that roars in this passage. When you think of Jesus, let me ask you, which lion comes to mind? The one that munches on grass, waddles when it walks and wears a silly lion suit, or do you think of the lion, Jesus Christ, fierce and mighty? God is our creator. He's created each and every one of us. He's given you life. He's made you for a purpose, and that purpose is to serve him, to serve him as he is your sovereign king. We're to worship him as our God. Ultimately, though, We have all chosen to rebel against him. Not a one of us have not. All of us have rebelled against God. We have all committed high treason against our great king. The Bible calls that sin. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled. When we commit treason against the sovereign, what happens? He makes war against you. But here's the good news. The good news is that instead of coming to destroy you, instead of coming to utterly remove you and cast you out of his kingdom, he comes and he sends his son to stand trial for treason that you committed. He stands in your place. His own son, the son of the king, the sovereign Lord, his son offers to pay for your punishment, to die in your place, and anyone, Anyone who receives that good news, who trusts in it, is welcomed back into the kingdom, totally acquitted of all the charges of treason. The virtue of the son of the king is ascribed to you. The princely robes that the king's son would wear has been given to you if you simply believe and trust in the good news. If you turn from your rebellion and you submit to this sovereign king, he looks upon your obvious sin and he responds in mercy by sending his son to pay for your treasonous acts. And here's how we respond so often. No thanks. A little bit more proof that I've actually sinned against this God. I just need a little bit more proof that, you know, about the details concerning the payment that this so-called son has made. Or maybe we say things like, maybe someday. Hey, I really appreciate the, uh, the gesture, Jesus. And God, uh, will work this out some other time in the future. Or maybe we won't. I'm not really sure. Good day. That's often the response that we commit. That's often the response that the culture will demonstrate. Back to God. Think about how terrible that is. On two counts. Not only have we sinned against God in gross rebellion, but he sent his son to pay for our sins and we respond with, Silly things like no thanks, or maybe some other day. That's incredibly, incredibly naive. This world and everything in it, you included, are property of God. You are his creation. And though you chose to be his enemy, he offers to ransom you with his own righteous life. Don't respond with foolishness. It was foolish enough for us to be rebellious against God. But now, don't respond spurning, trampling, outraging the spirit and rejecting the gospel. It's not simply a matter of choice. Well, I'm just not convinced, or maybe some other day I'll do Jesus a favor and I'll follow him. I want you to hear the lion roar this morning. Jesus, the great lion for which Aslan is a metaphor, is a warrior And instead of running from him or being indifferent towards him, run to him and receive his mercy. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Do you understand that? The warning that we receive is for Christians as well. And it's saying, don't stop. Don't turn back. Keep going. Not only do you have a promise of a reward, but you have a promise of a consequence that is unbearable to be cast off from God's presence for all eternity, to be considered in final his enemy. Friends, the kingdom of God has come, and the scriptures make it clear that all will kneel before the great lion that roars. Everyone will kneel. Everyone will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The sad reality is some of us will do it late. Some of us will think it true now and then abandon it. And in final, we'll be standing on the wrong side as enemies of the king who sent his son to die on our behalf. There's a warning here, and it's heavy. And I don't want to just quickly brush it to the side. Do you feel the weight of this warning? Christian, we're all in danger of falling away. And so this warning is issued to you this morning, but there's also a remedy that's offered. So how do we address this warning? How do we address this danger? Well, there's a remedy. Look at verse 32. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. We don't need much help understanding what that word recall means. It means to think back on, to consider one way to think of it is it's, it's almost, it's, and it's used often in the, in the scriptures, as almost like calling something back into court and reviewing it. And so he says, call it back in. Consider these former days. Which ones? Well, the days when sometimes you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes partners with those so treated. So either you experienced it or you stood with somebody that was experiencing it, they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. I love this word, publicly. It's the same word, theater. It means to, well, publicly exposed, to be brought up on stage, to be, to be made a spectacle of, so that everybody could see you exposed to reproach, shame, and even affliction. And you stood with those who, even though you weren't sometimes the, the focus of the attention of the persecution, but you stood with those who were facing it. The question that kind of rings in my mind is why would they do that? Why is he recalling us to think about what others had gone through in the past and how this group of people had stood with him in the past? Well, he goes on. He says, You had compassion, you had sympathy on those in prison. And here's the weird thing. It says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Have you ever had your house broken into and something stolen from you? It's such a terrible feeling. It's not a feeling that we enjoy, that's for sure, but it marks us even in our soul to think that in our sacred place, the place that we call home where we rest and close our eyes, believing that we're safe, that some stranger was in there and took things that did not belong to you. It's a damaging experience. But here it says that you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They'd stood, these Christians, in the past, they'd stood with those who were being persecuted and they themselves were persecuted. Their houses were being taken from them. They were losing everything what they could fit in a bag they took and carried out of the city. Now we don't know if this is a reference to Rome in the 60s when Nero uh, basically got the, all the Christians out or maybe this is a reference to Jerusalem in Acts 8 when the, the apostle Paul or the, the persecutor Saul was tormenting the church. We don't know which one and running people out and they were, they were scattering for their lives. We don't know which one but the point is this, they lost everything strangers went into their homes, went into their bedrooms, took their keepsakes and their belongings and their things that had been handed down through their family. It was all stolen. It was all lost. And listen to this. The preacher says, but you you accepted that joyfully. It wasn't even that big of a deal to you. Why? He says, because you knew that you had a better possession. And I love this. You knew that you had an abiding one. What does abiding mean? It means that it wasn't able to be taken away. It was treasure stored up in heaven that moth and rust and thieves can't break in and steal and, and ruin. They didn't lose heart. They knew that this life was passing away, but they also knew that their reward was sure and they were waiting for it. It was at will call. They were going to go to the desk. They had a Confident expectation that when they got there, the sacrifice would be there for them. The door into God's very presence would be open to them. I want you to pay careful attention here. Because if you're not careful, you could misunderstand something that's taking place here. What's the preacher actually drawing their attention to? Is he saying something like this? "You You were so good in the past. I want you to remember how good of a Christian you were in the past. When things got really tough, you were strong. And you stood with those that you should have stood with. Remember that. No, he's actually not saying that. Look again at verse 34. Yes, he's saying that that happened. This is what took place, but there's a reason why it took place the way that it did. There's a reason that they were joyful. There's a reason that they didn't lose heart. They held fast, that they had compassion and stood with those who were suffering, even when they themselves weren't. And what is the answer? Since you knew that you yourselves, verse 34, had a better possession and an abiding one. And now referencing what had happened to them in the past and how they knew, they had confidence in the past And calling them to do that in the present, he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, which still has a great reward. What does he want them to remember? Not that they're outstanding Christians. Not that they were faithful in the past. Not that they suffered together and won an award or got a pin or a medal. No, he wants them to remember why they did that in the past. He wants to remind them that there was a time in their lives that they were beyond a shadow of a doubt sure that Jesus was worth it. That's what he's reminding them of. You used to believe this. You were convinced of it, and you gave up everything for it. That field that you found treasure in, you sold everything for it. Now don't turn back. Remember, there's still gold in them hills. There's still treasure in the coffers. Don't turn and and run Don't throw away your confidence. What was on their mind when they suffered in the past? Specifically, I bet it was the contents of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. We looked at it already last week. Let's read it. Therefore, brothers, this is on their minds. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter into the holy place. We won't get out of this life alive. But when we leave here, we will enter into the very presence of Jesus. And even now we do so in prayer. That's on their minds. We've been kicked out of our homes, and we will enter into the very presence of God now in prayer through the name of Jesus. This new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Yes, they've taken my house, but we have a great high priest over the house of God, and he's allowed us to come in. So now let's draw near With a true heart and full assurance of faith, this true heart and faith that he has given to us, and let's draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we won't be able to bathe in our homes, but we don't need to. Our bodies are washed with pure water. We have a better, we have a lasting inheritance, a lasting reward that cannot be taken from us. He says, remember that. You used to be convinced of it. Don't stop. Don't let up. Keep your confidence, endure, believe in the promises of God. And so what are we to do with this this morning? What are we to do with this remedy? We are to let the past speak. We've let the lion roar, we've heard him, and now let's let the past speak. We love time-traveling stories. We love to hear about something going wrong in the present and we go back into the past We try not to mess everything up, but we're able to change the past in order to to, uh, affect the future. We love those sorts of stories, and really, it doesn't ever happen. It doesn't exist. It's impossible, but in some small sense, our past can affect our present and even our future because the past actually speaks. What do you mean by the past speaking? Well, friends, our, our hearts are prone to wander, We are a fickle and forgetful people. Our relationship with God can grow stale. Other things can become more important. Our minds begin to believe that there is another way, something better, another sacrifice. But we have to allow the past to remind us of what He has done for us. We have to let the past speak. One of the ways, just simply, that you can do that is to keep a journal. Keep a journal. It's such a simple task, and yet it can yield fantastic results. Unintentionally, I stumbled across a journal entry that I had made last year about this time, and I was floored. Literally, I'm not saying that. Preachers shouldn't lie. I'm not lying. I was floored on Thursday in my office as I read it. I couldn't believe that I had forgotten what I this time that I had journaled about, about this time I had spent with God. And now his spirit convicted me and crushed me brought me to tears, and then brought me to joy as I entered into the presence of God. And I wrote down some remarks, things that I wanted to do and ways that I wanted to respond, ways that I wanted to lead and live in a better way in connection with what Jesus had done for me. And I forgot it. I forgot it. One of the the highlights of 2022, I forgot it. And thank God, I journaled inconsistently and infrequently, and yet I recorded down what God had done for me in the past. And there it was, like a warm, fresh meal prepared for me that very minute. Keep a journal. And there are benefits far more than just you keeping a a journal and helping you. This morning, I wanted to show this book to you. This is a book called Letters from a Grandfather's Heart. And it was written by Dave Babcock or affectionately referred to as Granddad. Dave wrote this book. It is a series of letters. It's a series of reflections on scripture truths, gospel truths and he wrote it to his grandkids. These are journals. These are reflections that this brother has given to his children and to his children's children. Marie Duenas' Father, what a, what a wonderful gift. And I have a copy of it. I have my own infrequent journalings, and I have this complete set as well. What kind of blessing could you give to yourself when you journal? What kind of blessing could you give to your children and to your children's children as you reflect and you write down what God has shown you in the past, the ways that he's met you in the past? Many of you cherish the keepsake that you received at the death of your grandfather or your grandmother their own personal Bible with notes written in it. Maybe even you can imagine on those wrinkled, circled pages, the tears that had fallen as God had shown them some truth about Jesus Christ in the past. Those are treasures that we have in this life. Those tear-stained pages are journals of what Jesus has done for our family, what Jesus has done for our forebears. So keep a journal and consider ways that you could do that creatively similar to a journalist, to build monuments, build monuments. In Joshua chapter 4 and 5, Israel crosses the Jordan and enters into the promised land. They're on the western side of the Jordan. And as they're passing over, God stops the water. They cross over the Jordan, and while the water's pass back, God's like, hey, I want you to grab a bunch of stones, big rocks out of the bottom of that river, and I want you to drag them up, and I want you to build a big monument. Why do you want us to do that? Because I want you to remember the time that I promised you that we'd be doing this thing and you struggled to believe it, but now you're here and I don't want you to forget and I don't want your kids to forget and I don't want their kids to forget. So take those stones and build a large monument so that you can be reminded of this in years and years in the future. As a matter of fact, in Joshua chapter four, verse five, it actually says that it's still there to this day. And of course, that was the day of the writing and I've looked for them they're not there anymore. But they were there for a long time. This monument. When the Hebrews exited Egypt, they were instructed to observe a Passover. This celebration was basically just a monument. It was a tradition that as they practiced the Passover on a yearly basis, the children would ask, Daddy, what's this all about? Grandpa, what, what, what does this mean? And he says, I'm so glad you asked, son. This is a reminder of what God has done for his people. They built a monument. Related to that, they they made traditions. Think about the fact that we are meeting on a Sunday, not a Saturday. We're meeting on a Sunday. Why? Well, the early Christians, they commemorated the day that Jesus rose from the dead by saying, hey, well, let's not get together on Saturday anymore. Let's get together on Sunday. Why did they do that? Well, we believe that they were inspired, that they were led to do that. But in addition to that, mechanically, why? Why? Because they wanted to be reminded every single Sunday of the resurrection. And so they had this monument every single day of the week. Whether you're Christian or not Christian, the first day of the week is a reminder that Jesus rose from the dead. What has he accomplished? Well, we look at this monument. We look at this first day of the week. Every single Sunday is Easter Sunday. And we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Finally, as we consider getting creative of building monuments Consider starting a tradition. Do you have any traditions in your life, any sort of a monument that you've placed there, that when you look at it, when you celebrate it, it reminds you of the specific, unique power of God shown in your life in times past? Last week, I gave you specific homework, and some of you are starting to sweat right now. In addition to the heat, The inadequate AC, you're also thinking, is he going to call me out? I don't know if I have all 10 of my ways to stir up ready. Well, I'm not going to ask you about that in this setting, but I will soon. But another piece of homework for you is this. Consider what sort of traditions, what sort of monuments, fathers, can you put in your life that would allow your children to be reminded of your faith? What are some ways that you could stir yourself up and stir your family up and stir your church up to consider what Jesus has done on our behalf? That's what we're called to do. Finally, as we consider this idea of building monuments, as we consider this idea of uh, this, um, in addition to journaling and monuments, is this idea of biographies, reading Biographies. I've told you this before. It's true today. Few things stir up confidence in Jesus like a good biography. Few things stir up confidence in Jesus like a good biography. I want to encourage you to to consider securing a book, maybe two, even this week. A godly brother or sister, maybe they wrote it themselves, or it was written about them. Regardless, consider. Finding a book that tells you about a faithful man or woman of God in time past, and as you read, as you recall what God did in their lives, I trust that you'll be encouraged. I got another book here this morning. It's 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. It's a list, uh, or a grouping of 21 faithful men of God who were flawed and yet they were fruitful. And this book has been fresh, dry wood on my fire many, many times. I've got an extra copy. I'm just going to leave it right there. And if you want it, come and get it. Please don't fight. Uh, Potentially, if uh, you grab it at the same time, uh, Black Friday style, well, maybe I can find another one for you. Uh, But that's there if you want to grab that. That is one uh, piece of, uh, one tool that has stirred my heart up numerous times, even in the last five years of being a pastor here at this church. So take a look at that. Additionally, as we consider reading biographies, just skip ahead. Here's a little bit of an advertisement. Look at at chapter 11. Almost entirely comprised of a biography. A list of biographies. Other servants of sovereign joy who in faith endured many things. Many dark days. But they didn't lose their faith. We'll spend some time week by week, looking at each of these characters in chapter 11. But that's not today. What can a personal journal, what can a monument, what can a biography offer? All of these and much, much more can offer reminders of what God the Father has done through God the Son on your behalf. And so he sternly warns us at the beginning. He gives us a, uh, some other information there After his warning, but then finally he gives us some encouragement. This is where he leaves us with encouragement. Look at verse 39. He says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. The writer knows the recipients. He knows the audience here, and he says, I I, I know that you're not the sort of person, you're not the sort of people that are going to shrink back and because of that be destroyed. You are those who have faith and preserve their souls. I want you to notice something very very slight here, but he he makes a pretty bold pronouncement here, but he doesn't just make it of them, he makes it of himself too. Did you notice that? He says, we are not those who shrink back. That's not who we are, that's not our stock. We're not the kind that shrink back. We're not the kind that lose faith. We're not the kind that continually go on deliberately sinning and blaspheming the gospel. No, that's not us. We're the sort that keep the faith, and because of that, our souls are saved. Now, I do want to say, I'm not the fondest of the ESV's translation in verse 39. I've studied the Greek phrasing here this week, and I I think that could have been more accurately translated like the New American Standard translates it, or the King James Version translates it. And I'm not saying the ESV is wrong, but I am saying I think there would have been a more helpful and more accurate way to, to, uh, to read that. Let me give you the New American Standard Bible. It's slightly different. It says, But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. It's not faith and preserving themselves, but it's faith to the preserving of their souls. Shrinking back to destruction, faith to the preserving of their souls. The King James Bible offers something very similar. But we are not of them who draw back to perdition, but those who... Believe to the saving of the soul. I think it's more helpful to translate it the way that way because, well, first off, there's no and in the original Greek. And in addition to that, it's not faith and preserving, it's faith that preserves. And where did that faith come from? Faith came from God. And who is that faith in? God. Specifically, Jesus Christ, the Son. So either way, faith is something that's given to us. It's in Jesus, and it's Jesus that saves. It's not you. You can't preserve your own soul. What are we to do with this encouragement, though? Well, we are to be encouraged, and we are to encourage. The greatest need that the preacher here is saying of this church, and of this church by extension, is that we need Endurance. We need endurance. And so what are we to do with all this? We are to help the church endure. We're to help the church endure. Now there's two ways this morning that we can throw it away, that we can abandon all of this. And I'm going to speak generally. The first is that we just throw it away. We know what we're doing. We recognize it. We come to a point of decision and we say, I would rather go this way than that way. I would rather follow the world than follow Christ. I would rather have sin than God. And we just flat out reject it. We weigh it all out and we say, I'm throwing it away, I reject it. If that's you here this morning, let me just remind you of the main idea, the synthesis of this entire passage, the consequences of rejecting Jesus are terrible. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence in him. Consider again. Don't neglect it or don't reject it. One way is that we reject, but here's the other way. We neglect. Some of us just flat out reject it. We're tempted to reject it. And others of us, we are tempted to neglect it. It's the same thing. Maybe different intentions, but not that different In the end, have you ever opened up your junk drawer or your your top drawer and you found some piece of paper in there, maybe an envelope, and you open it up and it's like, hey, in there was a gift certificate. And that gift certificate is pretty exciting for you to see. You're reminded that when you go to this particular store, you could spend this specific amount of money there. It's a little bit exciting. But then you begin to read read the fine print and you realize that through neglect, you've missed out on this opportunity. You didn't care for this offer that was yours. You didn't come to the desk to receive what was waiting for you soon enough. You've neglected it. Most of us here, if we're honest, we're not in danger of rejecting, though some are. Most of us are in danger of neglecting it, not rejecting it. And I'll remind you, it's the same thing. And so the warning is the same, the reminder is the same, the encouragement is the same as it was last week. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, what does it say? And let us consider how to stir up one another to loving good works. Don't let your brother and sister, don't let your son and your daughter, don't let your life group and don't let your D group, don't let them let this fire go out. Don't let them neglect it, that's what it says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Not neglecting this confession of faith that we believe that Jesus was rose on this day and we'll meet to commemorate that. We'll meet because we need it. It's the habit of some, they've neglected it. It's gone to the wayside. In the face of that, what are we to do? We're to endure. And in our endurance, we are to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, brothers and sisters, the lion is coming. The king will return. And when he does, will he find you faithful? Let's stir one another up until that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for warnings like this morning. Each of us this morning would rather, at the onset, have heard or chosen a passage that would have been gentler, kinder, more amenable to children who are here with us this morning. And yet in your infinite wisdom and in your kindness to us, you have warned us. You've reminded us, you've called us to remember that you are the sovereign Lord of this world and we, your enemies, have been offered forgiveness. Would each of us remember that this morning? We've been promised such a great reward. But we've also been warned that those who continue in rebellion against God will be judged, and that by fire, for all of eternity. Father, we pray that you continue to save us from that. We pray that we would be a people that continue, continue to hold on to what is true, to encourage one another, and to stir one another up. God, you've done that. You've done it this week. We pray that you wouldn't stop it. Give us new, fresh, creative ways to stir one another up. Father, give us old, ancient ways to stir one another up to love and good works. It's worth it. Help us to stay faithful. Father, we love you. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.